0: My guest on this episode is Emily Rich. She was diagnosed in March, 2019 at the age of 32 with stage one encapsulated papillary carcinoma, which is a very rare form of breast cancer. Emily talks about being diagnosed shortly after moving cross country and at a time when she was planning her wedding. She shared her course of treatment and openly talked about the decision to preserve her eggs, as well as the additional toll that took on her body and the work that still needs to be done with regard to fertility preservation and cancer. Take a listen in as Emily shares her story. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12 year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, Many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. Welcome to the show, Emily. I am so happy to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about your breast cancer journey. Um, Tell me how it started for you. So it actually all started, uh, my husband
1: and I had just moved to New York City. We had moved across the country from California um, for a job that my husband got out here. And about four weeks later, four or five weeks later, um, I felt a lump. And didn't even have a doctor yet here, didn't have any of that. And so found a doctor very quickly um, and got it checked out. And a few weeks later was diagnosed with an encapsulated papillary carcinoma, um, which is a very rare cancer. It happens in less than 1% of cases of breast cancer. Um, And it, I mean, as anyone who... Uh, is faced with a cancer diagnosis, I mean, the whole world just started to melt around us,
0: right. um, around me
1: in particular. So yeah. I
0: want to ask a quick question. Um, yeah. I mean, you were 32 at the time of your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So yeah. were you doing, like, routine breast exams? Um, was that kind of how you found it, or was it just, like, a random...
1: It was Such a random. I would like to say that I'm one of those perfect patients <laughs> that checks their breaths every single month on the first of the month, which I do now.
0: Yeah, I feel like um, there are genuinely very few people who actually do that.
1: Exactly. It's it, it's especially when we're so young, and uh, you know, our doctors tell us, you know, oh, you're very young. You're you know, you're not at risk. You're not at risk. You're not at risk. And the truth of the matter is, you're never too young to take care of yourself. You're never too young to look out for yourself. And I, I wish I had done it more, but it was just a very, it was a random night. Um, and I was laying in bed and I felt it. I, it wasn't like a, I wasn't even like doing an intentional check. Um, it was just kind of, I was laying in bed and I felt something. Um, and it, at first it just kind of felt, you know, like a small little lump. And then I, you know, kind of went down the rabbit hole of saying, well, maybe it's a big lump. Maybe it's, you know, a lump that I'm not so sure of. Um, and then, you know, went down the Google rabbit hole of Googling, you know, what if it is breast cancer and you know, what is it like to have chemo? What is it like to have surgery
0: and all this kind of stuff? And yeah, you went real far into that rabbit hole,
1: real deep, (laughs) real deep into that rabbit hole. It was almost just kind of like impossible not to, and then started reading statistics that, okay, Calm down a bit. You know, 80% of the time, these lumps are nothing, especially in younger women. And so then I kind of pulled myself off the ledge um, in time to get uh, a real breast exam from my doctor. And then she did a mammogram and an ultrasound just to be sure. And the radiation technologist or the radiologist um, came back after the mammogram and said, you know, we really do think it might be something. So we're going to do a biopsy. Um, and then I just went swirling again. Um,
0: yeah. You I know mean, it's, it's when you kind of start exploring and you realize like, Oh, biopsy, ultrasound, fine needle guided, like these are things yeah. that you hear. And then all of a sudden you're sitting right And all in of a sudden space. you're doing that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's and really it's hard terrifying. not to start. It is. Did you have, um, did you have somebody with you or were you by yourself?
1: I went, so I, my, he was my fiance at the time. Um, he came with me to the biopsy, um, not in the room, but he was, you know, in the waiting room with, um, waiting for me, but I was, I was by myself, but I had a, I had a wonderful nurse and the, um, the radiologist performed the biopsy would, and he was, he was really wonderful. Um, but yeah. And then two weeks later, no, I'm sorry. One week later, uh, it took about a full week for us to get the results back. Um, And he called the radiologist called me up, um, and said, yes, I have your results here. And unfortunately it's cancer. And then I hardly remember anything after that. The only thing I remember is calling my husband while he was at work and saying it's cancer come home. Oh
0: my (laughs) God. And
1: yeah, and it was, yeah, it was just, it, it was wild. I had no, I couldn't tell up from down, left from right. And my husband actually, he raced home and, I said, the um, the radiologist gave me the number of the chief of surgery at the hospital. Um, you have to call her because I can't put two sentences together. So he called them and they said, can you put on your roller skates? We just had an opening today. Can you get down here in 30 minutes? Wow. Um, and we hot-tailed it down there. We got there as fast as we possibly could. Um, I'm I was just still in so much shock. I was... Go teetering between tears and terror, um, and just kind of wallowed in myself. I just kind of caved in. And then the surgeon said, you, what you have is called an encapsulated papillary carcinoma. Um, and I found out later that day that actually my paternal aunt had the exact same cancer on the exact same side. Um and the exact same size.
0: Wow. And
1: exa- yeah, and, well, and she especially was, because
0: it's so rare. I mean, it's only one exactly. percent of the population. And then to have, right. you know, a, a kind of a genetic connection, exactly to that well, degree. And,
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think well, I was very convinced at that point because you know, as, as a lot of cancer survivors know, right after you get diagnosed a lot of the time they're going to ask you to do genetic testing to see if you have the BRCA gene. Right. And I was convinced that I would be BRCA positive because I thought there's no way that I could have this rare a cancer, the same kind of cancer that someone else in my family has, um, and it not be some kind of a genetic link. And it turns out I was BRCA negative um, and check 2 negative. I was uh, I had a clean genetic panel. But I kind of see that as, well, they just haven't discovered which genetic link it is yet. Um, you know, like I think yeah. it's, it's definitely a genetic link. I just haven't, they haven't figured it out yet. They haven't gotten to my place in line yet. Yeah. So I'm going to, I plan on still getting tested every few years.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a, I think that's a good idea um, to mm-hmm. to get tested. I know a lot of people, you know, once they've had their breast cancer experience or their journey um, or adventure, whatever they want to call it, uh, yeah. you know, they feel like, well, there's really no need for me to know whether I have this genetic mutation or not, which isn't always true because, you know, right. coming from, you know, I was diagnosed in 2007. At this point mm-hmm. in time, you know, if something were to, if I were to have a recurrence, there are specific medicines or, um, treatment options that are available for BRCA positive individuals, which I, which I am. Um, so I agree with you. I think that, you know, it's just one of those things where they just haven't found it yet. I mean, there are too many stories that I hear of like, you know, this person in my family had the exact same kind of cancer and right around the same age and the same breast. And Mm -hmm. like, it's so many stories like that, um, Mm -hmm. that there has to be a genetic connection.
1: Totally agree. And I think it's also really interesting because um, I was reading it right after I was diagnosed. I was reading everything and anything that I could get my hands on that was cancer related. And I read this great book called The Emperor of All Maladies. And it talks about the history of cancer um, from the time it was discovered all the way to now. And And th- it was fascinating to me to read how far we have come in the war in the in the entire medical world of cancer, um, that it's no longer a death sentence right. um, when, when you receive it. And I, and I think that we, have a, we still have a long way to go to catch up when it comes to the stigma of cancer. 100%. You know, medi- yes. <laughs> medically, yeah. You know, medically we have come so far. We have made such fascinating and incredible advances and those advances have saved your life and my life and, and so many others' lives. And at the same time, when you hear the words, you have cancer, you still go immediately back to that place of, oh my God, am I going to die if I can be so blunt? But, and, and I think that that ties way more to the stigma that we have as a society around cancer. We don't see it as a chronic condition. We see it as a death sentence. And I think that we have to start changing that, yes. um, especially for, if, if nothing else, for the people who come after us who will be diagnosed with cancer to let them know that a, they are not alone and B that they, there is a, there is a a place for them to go to be supported fully and wholly. Um, not just medically, but also mentally.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, physically, socially, emotionally, um, Mm -hmm. spiritually, all of those things. And so one of the things that you had brought up and I, um, was just thinking about this and I was a little surprised. So I'm, I'm currently doing my 300 hour yoga teacher training and amazing. Thank you. And one of the things that is a part of that training was special populations, which addresses cancer survivors. And Mm -hmm. in there it referenced a research study. And I don't, I don't have access to the exact research study. I'm definitely interested in finding more, but it really talked about how out of all of the diseases that exist in the world, Cancer survivors, cancer patients and survivors are the one population that is touched the least. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to go back to, you know, that whole mm-hmm. idea of, you know, what cancer is and what cancer isn't. And, you know, people still just genuinely being afraid of cancer. Yes,
1: 100%. And
0: they, and for good reason, too. Oh, you Absolutely. Know? Yeah, yeah, I but you're not going to catch totally it. Totally understand that. <laughs> I'm just going to exactly. throw that out there. Like anybody who's right. listening, that's not a cancer survivor, you won't get it. <laughs> right? Exactly. It's
1: so true. It's so so true. I didn't get it until this all happened to me. You know, everybody. It, it's it's strange because we all know someone who has been affected by cancer, and yet at the same time, until it it happens to you, you don't understand it. You you just you kind of you your brain has a, has a shut-off valve at a certain point where it protects you from, from kind of going down the, the, that rabbit hole. And, and then the floodgates just are pulled open when something like this happens to you and you are immersed completely in this world and you learn so much that you didn't understand before Absolutely. about your own limits and about the limits of the people around you in this community. Um, I mean, I, you always know... It's kind of like an, uh, it, it's sort of an underlying obvious statement to say that cancer survivors are the strongest people that we know, right? But until you actually see it, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I've met the most incredible human beings I have ever met in my entire life through this entire process, through the, throughout this journey. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm blown away consistently.
0: Absolutely. I agree totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, some of them are, yeah, some of them I'm just in awe. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that nobody goes through this to be in awe of, but right, you know, right. sometimes it happens. Um, yeah. you know, and and even, you know, our journeys are all different. Um, but there's still, you know, somebody else can inspire and give hope and educate You know, um, somebody else, which is really kind of why I was super excited to have you on because I never even I'm 13 years into my diagnosis and not once have I ever talked to anybody that had papillary breast cancer. Yeah. So I like, I Googled it and I'm like, wait a minute, like she had thyroid cancer. I wonder if she knows this is a breast cancer, you know? So I did a, I had to start like researching and Googling it and, you know, figuring out what it was. And then I found it and was like, oh my gosh, like I, I didn't even know this, this existed.
1: Yeah. Um, It's, I mean, it's still an anomaly. It's actually, so what was strange also about my diagnosis, I mean, we're still learning things about it. Um even after I was officially diagnosed, we actually found that there was a second cancer inside the encapsulated papillary carcinoma um, that was it, they called it a cancer uprising. So it was a second cancer that I mean, was sort of building. I mean, hold on. Let me stop right there.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. They've got to give that a different name because when I think of can- like something uprising, right. like that is not, right. like I'm not okay with that. I agree. I <laughs> agree. I was like, well,
1: let's actually sunset this one. Yeah, that like, would be great. Like, yeah, let's call that something else um, because. Right, yeah. Exactly. Right, exactly. I, I I totally agree. I was sitting there. I was like, "I'm sorry. Come again. Uh, yeah. Let us rewind this tape. I know. Please, like DJ. it sounds
0: like it's like yeah, like some inspiring book or really right. Like it's gonna <laughs> be some like great thing. And like no, 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 no. no there was no, no. cancer uprising. It's like, completely, let's, right. yeah, yeah. It's yeah. completely. Yeah. Something completely wrong. Completely exactly. wrong.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. So we had. I had. You know, kind of just dip my toes in the water of my treatment. I think I was about, I was, I was like days away from starting radiation treatment. And, um, I saw my oncologist for, I think like the first or second time. And she had said, um, yeah, you know, we discovered that actually there was a second cancer, but because we took the entire encapsulated papillary carcinoma out it's okay. Like we're still giving you a lower oncotype score, which is the score that they give you to determine whether or not chemo will be beneficial to you or not. Um, or other medications too. Um, so, but yeah, it was just, it was an, it added another layer to the rarity of the disease because I thought, well, goodness,
0: like, (laughs) well, okay, I just got double the fun, didn't I? Yeah. Um, like, I so feel like, I mean, look, you're a little bit younger than I am, but I just keep thinking, <laughs> like, no, no whammy, no whammy, like that pressure luck game. Right. I don't know, like no double whammy, whatever exactly. it is.
1: Exactly.
0: Yeah. Exactly. And that's, exactly. that's what it was. It, yeah. Oh nuts. my gosh. But yeah,
1: I mean, being, being someone, who, you know, we had, we were at the sort of starting line of our lives together, my husband, my fiance and I, and. All of us that we had just gotten engaged, you know, six months prior to all of this, and so we were in the midst of planning a wedding, oh. and you know, we were we, we were at that starting line, and so now the starting line had to be moved a little bit, or so I thought at the time, and right. in reality, kind of looking back, I'm like, well, that was a hell of a start, and you know, we had to make so many rapid decisions, so many, so very, very quickly, and Absolutely. a lot of things around, you know, the future, our future together. Sure. Um,
0: so. I'm going to ask real quick because I I know where this is going and I definitely want to go there. (laughs) Um, Did you do a lumpectomy? Was that what they did or did they have you do a mastectomy? Yeah.
1: So I did a lumpectomy. So she presented me with both options. um, And she said both would have given me this uh, very similar um, risk of recurrence. And so I decided to go with a lumpectomy um, and radiation. Okay. Um, and then tamoxifen. I'm on tamoxifen now. Okay. So, so no chemotherapy, no chemo. Okay. Um, yes, correct. Yeah. Okay. No chemo, just radiation and, and surgery.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, and it's definitely not just, um, of course, way, shape, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. because <Absolutely>. yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's very similar to, I, I had a bilateral mastectomy, but it's very similar. I didn't do chemotherapy. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I get it. It's there's still a lo- lot of complexities that go with just those things. So, yeah. um so yeah, I mean, you guys were really at that starting point point. and so, you know, thinking about the future of what lies ahead, um you know, I what were those conversations? Like I I definitely want to hear about that because yeah. I think this is important. I mean, you were 32, you were getting ready to get married and, you know, yeah. I don't know what what you wanted for your life. But, um, you know, I, I would imagine some people want kids, some people don't want kids. So, you know, mm-hmm. what were some of those things that you guys were talking about and where did that lead you to?
1: Yeah. You know, so before I was diagnosed with cancer, my husband and I had, had said, um, you know, we had that conversation of, do you want kids do you want kids? And I've always wanted kids. Um, and we had, had a discussion early on about, you know, wanting to start trying at the end of, uh, I think at the end of 2019, you know, shortly after we had gotten married, we were going to try, start to try to have a family. And then cancer comes and says, oh, excuse me. um, And just inputs itself right there in 2019, in the beginning of 2019. So right off the bat, at our very first meeting with the surgeon, um, when she was kind of laying out, here's what the next six weeks of your life are going to look like. You're going to, uh, go meet with a plastic surgeon to talk about, you know, what it will be like if you decide to go down the road of having a double mastectomy, what that recovery will look like, what the surgery will look like. Um, so you have to make a decision on that. You have to make a decision on, we'll have to make a decision on chemotherapy and or radiation or both depending on what, you know, we find in the pathology from your surgery. And the other thing that she said you really need to make a decision on is about preserving your fertility. And at the time, I thought, my body is about to go through a war. Um, I don't want to put it voluntarily through anything that I don't necessarily have to put it through. Um, And I I, I didn't want to add to that pressure and that stress. And so in the beginning, I thought, you know what, I'm not going to go through with it. And I'm actually really grateful that my surgeon pushed me a little bit on that and said, just meet with an onco-fertility doctor just to have a conversation. And if you still feel that way, then that's totally great and up to you. But you know, the reality is if you wanted kids at some point before you were diagnosed and you think you're still going to want them after this, preserving your fertility might be a good choice for you. Because you don't know what the treatment is going, what kinds of effects the treatments will have on your body, right? Particularly well, to
0: I mean, yeah. really, like genuinely good for her for really kind of pushing you to yes to at least explore. You know, there's yes. there are no requirements. You know what? there there is nothing to say that you have to do any of this, but meet with these people to have the discussion. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, again, the more, I mean, we're thrown into this, exactly what you said, like you have to make decision, decisions so fast. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes we don't always have the information to mm-hmm. make those decisions. So I'm glad she at least, you know, kind of pushed you to just have the conversation. Just talk about Me it. Me too. you know. Me and, too. And I,
1: I agree. I totally agree. I'm so grateful that that she did. Uh, push a little bit. And, and we, we worked with a phenomenal fertility um, oncologist who was just absolutely wonderful, answered all of our questions, put our minds at ease um, and ultimately led us down this road. And it was not an easy road. Um, It was I'll I'll be very, very clear about that. It was very, very difficult. Um, For me personally, I look back on it and, and say, yes, it was worth it. Um, I, you know, I can't speak for, for everyone, but I do think that it was a decision that I, that we made together as a family, um, that will help us in the future. It's a, it's a bit of an insurance policy, so to say. Right. Um,
0: yeah. And I think that, you know, I, I love the fact that you had somebody to make that decision with, you know, mm -hmm. you, you, Um, We're in a place in your life where you had a partner and having that Mm -hmm. conversation and making those decisions together, um, you know, I I think is very, very important for me myself. I was single. I wasn't dating anyone, um, you know, Mm -hmm. and so when they were talking to me about that kind of stuff, I was just like, (laughs) Like, I don't even have anybody in my life right now, and I can't imagine somebody walking in on this and being like, you know, yeah, I'm cool with all that, and now let's have kids too. (laughs) Um, Right, right. So, yeah. So, I mean, like, well, first of all, I'm thinking, to be on tamoxifen, the cancer Mm -hmm. is estrogen positive. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. That's correct. Yes, I'm ERPR positive. So, I would imagine there probably was some hesitation Um, you know, uh, so I did look into it on my own, like I didn't meet with anybody, but I did look into it. And one of the Mm -hmm. concerns that I had was pushing my body, um, Mm -hmm. with hormones, with estrogen when Mm -hmm. I was already estrogen positive. Um, so I would imagine that, that, you know, when you talked about, you know, kind of weighing the benefits that for you, it was worth it. Um, I would imagine that that probably was a question or a concern that It was had. a
1: huge question, yeah. a huge, that
0: was actually my first question when I walked in. And one of the reasons
1: too, why I was so apprehensive about it. Um, and, and that's exactly, that was, you took the words out of my mouth. It was a massive concern of mine. Um, you know, on the one hand you're being told that your cancer feeds off of estrogen, um, like a Pac-Man, so to say. And then on the other hand, you're being told, well, we're going to pump your body full of hormones that are estrogen based. And, you know, basically just kind of beef up your hormones to fool your body into thinking that it's pregnant. And, you know, so you're, you're hearing two very conflicting, um, ideologies there. And so that was the first question that I had to the fertility oncologist. And she said, you know, we first of all, you're being monitored every other day. Um, you're going in for blood work and an ultrasound, um, every day, every other day, um, until you're ready for an egg extraction. So they monitor oh, your wow. levels and yes. And they also keep them at a low, you're not going to be as at as high a level of estrogen as a woman who is not a cancer patient going through IVF to preserve her fertility would be at. So they use different medications for you if you are going through cancer. Um, Well,
0: that's good to I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: That was, they also use different dosages. Um, So, you may not be getting as high a dose as someone who is not a cancer patient um, would be receiving. So it's still, you're still getting the same medication. You're still experiencing the same side effects, but that you're being watched like a hawk throughout the whole process.
0: Yeah. Well, and I mean, to be seen every other day, like that's, that's intense.
1: (laughs) It's very intense. Let me tell you something. I, so let me paint you a picture I, um, when I was seven years old, I went to my mom and said, I want to get my ears pierced. And she said, okay, great. So we went to the mall to go get my ears pierced. And that is when we discovered that I have a deathly fear of needles because I passed out when I got my ears pierced into a glass display box. And from that moment on, anytime I would get a shot or blood work or a TB test, anything, it would be, she's hit the deck someone get a wheelchair. Okay. And so the thought of having to stick myself every night with not one, not two, but three needles, um, to inject yourself with hormones that make you feel bloated and foggy and irritable and, you know, name, name your side effect. Um, it was just kind of like one of those things of, is this really worth it? Do I really want to go down this road? Um, and it was, it it was rough. I mean, it took my, my mom is a retired RN. And so she had flown out from California. Both my parents had flown out from California and my mom was going to administer the injections for me because I I said, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And on the first night she went to give me the first injection and it was just overwhelming. It was almost like Like she popped an emotional balloon when she stuck me with the first needle because all of a sudden, all of my emotions about the entire journey up to that point came flooding out of me. And that was with the first needle. And so I still had two more to go. And I said, you know what? I need to do this on my own. I have to do this for myself. And this is me taking a little piece of control that I can right. and getting over this fear. And so she sat with me on one side, my husband on the other, and it took me about like 30 or 40 minutes to work <laughs> up the courage to actually do it. But the power that came from learning how to take control of this, the I mean, the, the symbolism behind it was just very, very empowering to be able to overcome such a an innate fear that I had with the two, two of the most important people in my life sitting beside me and walking me through it and coaching me through it for every single night for the following two or three weeks. Um, it was, it was emotionally exhausting. And then on top of that to then go to the doctor's office every other morning at seven o'clock in the morning to get your blood drawn and to get an internal ultrasound. I mean, you're being poked and prodded. In every which way, at one point you have to switch thighs and sides on which one where you're sticking. I mean, you just, you become, you feel like a pin cushion a little bit.
0: Well, and um, I, I can't even, so I'm the same. I hate needles. Yeah. Um, yeah. Needles are not my <laughs> jam. <laughs> <laughs> not your thing. Not your thing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, like I'm sitting here like cringing, making faces. <laughs> like, I, know. Oh, I know. I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, But, I mean, you're all, like, when you are diagnosed with cancer, like, that is basically what consumes your life anyways, and then Mm -hmm. to add on top of that, trying to go through the IVF, like, that is just, I... And by the way,
1: for not even a guarantee. Right. That's the other thing, too, is that you're, we, we were fortunate that I had a very strong reaction to the medication, So we, we, we had a pretty successful round and that was also in large part due to the fertility oncologist saying, we're going to do this full speed ahead so that we only have to do this once. Because there are a lot of women who go through this two, three, sometimes four times to get a good result. And they are warriors to me. To me, they are superheroes because just going through this one round was emotionally exhausting enough for me. I mean, we, my, my husband and I, you know, kind of say back and forth to each other that this was almost as difficult as cancer was.
0: Right. So was it, um, two to three weeks? Like does that, was that Mm -hmm. kind of the, okay. So every, every round is about that.
1: Yeah. Every round is usually about two weeks or so. It's, um, usually about,
0: no, uh, it's usually about two weeks.
1: Um, and, From start to finish. So at the beginning of the two weeks, you go to get assessed to sort of get like your baseline levels measured um, to see where your body's at. And then they determine what your medication is going to be as a result. After they determine what medications you're going to be on, you um, you meet with other specialists in the office who will then show you how to deliver your injections to yourself. So it's you kind of get a crash course in, in learning how to inject yourself um, very quickly. They go through how to mix the medication, because you're not just firing up the syringe and then sticking yourself, and then boom, you're done. You actually have to mix a lot of the medications. And I think this experience actually, for as far as we have come in cancer care, we have so much further to go in fertility preservation because the amount of work that you, that we had to go through just to prepare it was also a massive mind game that you had to psych yourself up into because you had to mix the medications together. You had to keep them at a certain temperature. Um, you had to make sure that you didn't stick your finger accidentally when you were putting the syringes in the syringe disposal box. Um, you had to make sure you had enough alcohol wipes and, um, and all this stuff. So it it was a, it was a huge dance. My, my, our kitchen counter, we had taken over my kitchen counter, um, at one point in the process and it just looked like a nurse's station in a hospital because it was just, there were alcohol pads and syringes and, um, and medications kind of everywhere. And so it's a lot, it's very, very intense and it requires a lot of focus and determination. Um, and on top of that, you're injecting yourself with things that make that focus and determination very difficult. So you're really trying to run a marathon with a 20-pound weight on your back right. throughout this whole thing um, wow. is kind of the best way I can describe it.
0: So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and again, I did not do um, the preservation, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I only know a little bit about it. Um, but to to think about all of the things that you that all of the things that you've just talked about within a you know 2 to 3 week time frame and then to not have success with that like i just yeah. can be devastating to have to do it over and over and over again like i just mm-hmm. can't imagine how emotionally exhausting mm-hmm. and physically exhausting Absolutely. that has to be
1: and and what's even more difficult i think is that there are so many states right now that do not have legislation protecting cancer patients, particularly female cancer patients who are looking to preserve their fertility, um, to protect them when it comes to the costs. Because if I could be as forward as I am in this moment with this, fertility preservation is a privilege right now.
0: And it shouldn't. And,
1: and it shouldn't be. If you want to preserve your fertility in any way, shape or form, money should not be a barrier for that. Absolutely, and right now it is, and that is evident when you walk into the waiting rooms and you don't see any diversity in those waiting rooms. I mean, you the access to the to this type of healthcare is non-existent in socioeconomically diverse um, locations, and I think that that is a huge problem that we have, especially in the cancer world right now, because. As more and more young people are being diagnosed with cancer, any type of cancer, not just breast cancer, but as more and more young people are being diagnosed with cancer, whether that be because we are making such advances in the medical field that we're able to detect it sooner or for other reasons, the fact of the matter is more young people are getting diagnosed. And if more young people are getting diagnosed, then these kinds of questions are creeping up more and more in our minds. How are we going to think further down the road for our future?
0: Absolutely. And I mean, we're at the point now where, um, you know, it's it's 12,000 yes. women under the age of 40 who are diagnosed yes. with breast cancer each year. Um, yes. You know, and, and I don't know what the statistics are for, you know, men who are diagnosed with any kind of cancer that impacts, you know, their
1: well, it's funny you mention that to because reproduce. my husband's actually a testicular cancer survivor. Oh my gosh. So that was, I know, um, as a, as a sidebar. Um, so that was another reason also why we had decided to ultimately get, that was a check in the pro column right. of going down this road because we also didn't know, um, you know, what the future held for him as well. You know, we had to be, we had to think about this very holistically Um, you know, not knowing what the future will hold for either one of us. And so that was another reason why we did it. But, you know, there's so many places where insurance companies are able to kind of delay whether or not, delay the decision of whether or not to cover someone who is looking to preserve their fertility facing a cancer diagnosis. And California just recently passed legislation, um, I think about six months ago or so, where um, they made it, they mandated that insurance companies do not delay in making a decision because a lot of these choices have to be made very quickly. Like you said about my situation, you know, this all happened in the span of two or three weeks. Yeah. We had to make that decision within those first crucial days of a diagnosis. You don't have the luxury of mulling over the decision and thinking, well, maybe I'll do it this year, maybe I'll do it next year. You have about two weeks maybe even less in some cases to ultimately decide if you want to go through this because you have to start your treatment at the time when your when your doctor tells you to start or or you should start your treatment at a time when you're advised to start your treatment and a lot of the time you, they don't want to wait to start your treatment because oh, you want to take care yeah. of it so quickly well in so space
0: yeah oh go, sorry go ahead no that's okay so and i'm thinking like you know stage 3 People, right? You know, people who exactly. are stage three or maybe even stage four. I mean, it, exactly. it, the reality is, is that younger women are still being diagnosed with those later stage um, exactly. breast cancers, and so you know, the there is you so were diagnosed stage were weren't you? Um, I was two. D- you, were two. two. Mm-hmm. you were two. You yeah, were two. Yeah, stage two. Um, right. but you know, like I think about the youngest kid. Um, I had asked the question of my oncologist, like, what was the youngest age? of mm-hmm. a breast cancer diagnosis that you have seen and she told me 13 13 13 13, Thirteen. Thirteen. That's Thirteen.
1: unbelievable it, it, unbelievable yes And and to think and, and and at that point that child does not have well, the ability it. to make those decisions and so you have these parents now who yes. are make or are question I mean there's so many swirling questions around this Absolutely And it, and I think it needs not I before I was kind of thrown into this world, I didn't even think twice about it. And I didn't even think twice about, you know, I had friends who had gone through IVF because they were, you know, struggling to have a family, but I did not even think twice about how that a decision to preserve fertility would have to be made by someone who's facing a cancer diagnosis. Um, And that was because I had my own blinders on, you know, I think that Now that those blinders are kind of ripped off of me, I feel really passionate that we have to talk about this so much more because this is a very real decision. And as real of a decision as it is that we have to make, it's also a very personal one, which is why I think people are afraid to talk about it. Because it's hard to have the conversation of a future family that you don't even know is guaranteed but yet you have to take very hard, difficult steps up a very steep and crumbling mountain in order to achieve that. Um, and on top of that, you feel crummy going through it. I mean, you have to essentially agree to to fight a whole nother battle on top of the, ba- the battle that you're already fighting. Right. Um, and that can be a really lonely process. But I, I think that we have to sort of start to ask the questions and have the conversation so that more and more women and men who are facing cancers that affect their reproductive systems know that this is not something that we have to shy away from. This is a real conversation that we can all have together and we can make it better and we can make it accessible for everyone um, so that they can all have access to this healthcare.
0: Absolutely. And I agree a hundred percent on all of that. I think it's part of that reason, part of the reason that we have the podcast is so that we can have these conversations, um, you know, so that we can bring this information to the masses and help people to understand that, you know, these are the options and, and this is, you know, something that you might have to consider at some point in time. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and I was kind of like you, like I, I didn't think anything about it. Like it, none of this yeah. was like, you know, and then and I will fully admit that the other level of complication is people who have a BRCA mutation or a oh, you know, check or pal V2 or, you know, whatever the genetic mutation is that adds a whole other layer of concern. Um, absolutely. You know, so absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just so multifaceted and, um, complicated and so many people just don't understand it, but it really is important that we have these conversations, um, you know, and that we just be open about it and know that, Mm. you know, you're not alone. Like there Mm -hmm. are people that are out there who are struggling through the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of thinking, um, you know, if, what would be like your best advice um, for somebody that maybe they just recently were diagnosed and this is something that they're, you know, kind of in a situation of now they have to make a decision or they're thinking about it. Um, You know, what, what would you offer in terms of advice for somebody in that situation?
1: That's a really good question. I think the advice that I would give is to listen to the advice of your doctors and take, take in all the information that they're giving you and to sit with it and to take a moment for yourself and to really consider what you want in this situation. I think that having, even though it is such a whirlpool of emotions that are flying around you in this moment, it is okay to take a minute to breathe and to be patient with yourself and to make the decision that is right for you. Because it's not going to be for everyone, but what is important is, I think, for you to push yourself or to give yourself that little bit of nudge to educate yourself further and to learn as much as you can, weigh out the pros and cons. Um, And if the cons outweigh the pros, then you have your decision. Um, And I think most importantly, whatever decision you make is the right one. You're not going to make the wrong decision here. You, You are facing one of the hardest things you've ever had to face in your life. And it is really difficult. And you probably have a world of support around you. I hope you have a world of support around you. And just know that, you can make the choices that you are empowered to make by learning more about what is available to you throughout this entire process.
0: I love that. All of it. Okay. <laughs> oh, good, oh, good. I love that. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right. Um, and I think that's great advice and, um, you know, thank you so much, one, for reaching out, um, being willing to share your story and being willing to talk about something that is very intimate and very personal. Um, you know, it's not always easy to do that, especially on, you know, such a public format. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, I, I thank you so much for just your time, um, you know, your your energy and just the advice that you've given to our listeners.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I so appreciate
0: it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at com. Thinking about advertising on this podcast, our ads not only create awareness for your brand, but also contribute to the continued growth and support of this show. Email us today and be on our next episode. Email podcast at BehindThePinkRibbon.com for more information. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.